When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, anyone starting a farm, if you look at the statistics, the, the chance of you being in any way successful are infinitesimally low. And not only that, if you think about the opportunity cost that you incur in doing that, so you can do everything right, but if investors don't like you, you won't raise any money. You can do everything right trading, but if you don't have the, the, the infrastructure, they won't give you any money. So you can you know, be the best guy in the world if you start at a time that your strategy is going to struggle, you won't have a business. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Todd Edgar, CIO of Atrius Family Office. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Todd. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I have to say, I'm so intrigued by the four trades you sent over. Uh, so I'm excited. But before we jump in, it's our tradition uh, to have our guests tell us a little bit about themselves. So give us a little bit about your background, where'd you grow up, and what were those early years like? Well, it's a probably good segue into a couple of the trades, actually. So uh, <laughs> uh, as you may mind about to tell from my accent, which I'm grimly still trying to hang on to. I'm, I'm Australian, but uh, I've been away from Australia for 26 years now, uh, so my accent is not what it once was. Uh, I grew up in country Australia, so uh, my accent was once much, much, much thicker than what it is now to the point where I go back there now and my high school friends all tease me for sounding like Greg Norman, and uh, <laughs> which, is, which is horrible, by the way. That's the last thing anyone would want. So, uh so when you were young, were you were you outgoing? Were you a numbers guy? You know, what what, what were you like? What 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 kind of you know what did you identify with? Well, it's sort of interesting. I have I have three children, as I mentioned, and my daughter is me, which is uh, yeah, really not uh, you know good good and bad, I guess. So <laughs> uh, and it's interesting seeing her behavior and seeing myself in that in terms of in this. So I would describe her as you know surface shy but uh underneath quite outgoing and that's you know if she knows you she'll be you know quite outgoing in the life of the party whereas she doesn't know you she'll be much more uh, uh clammed up and i'm probably pretty similar and then i was sort of fortunate enough to to be um you know pretty in terms of interests and academic stuff in terms of you know i I was decent at math and decent at you know more the artsy side of stuff too. So uh, fortunate enough to 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 be okay at all those things, which has been a pretty useful uh, set of skills for what I've subsequently done. I think. Yeah did did I did I read someplace or hear that you uh, did some philosophy as well? Yeah, yeah, that was sort of what I, I so you know I, I grew up with not a ton of money, so I actually uh, started. When I left, when I finished high school, I actually worked full time straight out of high school at Price Waterhouse as an accountant. And went to college at, on uni college at night, uh, which was horrible. But, um, and I found I didn't really particularly like accounting. So I switched over to, to philosophy and that's where I sort of finished my degree there. Uh, but I'd always had a, an interest in markets and interest in, in, in finance. So I, I was fortunate enough to, to fall into 
despite my degree, fall into uh, fall into what I'm still doing 30 years later. You know, it's at the end of this, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back and count. But what's so interesting is so a lot of the people that come on the podcast, um, most of them have had you know a fair amount of success. Let's and that's probably putting it mildly. Um, and a lot of them have gone through some variation of investment banking. They're entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs, or they're and I, I can't tell you. There's there's a great number of philosophers in this group or people who took philosophy in college, which I find so unexpected and so interesting. So everyone always thinks of it as sort of completely useless and wasted time or, you know, a, a, a sort of bend on the road to where they were meant to be. But I'm sort of wondering about that. But we're going to have to dive into that later. Yeah, I'd push back pretty hard on that because it's sort of a, it's a, you know, a system of, of thinking. And also, if you look at the history of philosophy, you know, it's been a, well, <laughs> the risk of using a philosophical term, it's, it's been a somewhat Hegelian process in that, you know, it's ideas competing and then perhaps one idea winning out or, or branches splintering. And that's not a horrible idea or not a horrible epistemological framework for, for investing, I think, in terms of, you know, thinking about yeah. different ideas and, you know, there not being any one truth uh, and, you know, having, uh, I guess, fairly solid doubts about any ground you're standing on. That's not the worst, uh, not the worst mental framework in the world for trading. So, you start out banking um, with a banking job in Australia. I'm gonna, I'm gonna condense a little bit because, and I'm not even gonna mention all the places, but you, you really have had big jobs at some of the biggest names in investment banking. Global head of, you know, commodities and prop trading at J.P. Morgan. Uh, global head of macro prop at, at Barclays. I mean, you know, Tudor, a stint at Tudor Investment. Um, so, so, I mean, that is quite a resume. And I mentioned this because your first trade isn't a specific trade. It's being naively optimistic at most points in your career. Um, and you list it as one of your best. Is that so interesting? Tell me about that. I was sort of thinking about the, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, what, you know, small success I've had in my career, you know, so much of that was if you look back at it, you go like, wow, I really didn't know what I was doing. Or like I had this assumption that like it was going to be this. And like if I knew what I knew now, I would have, that was just dumb. But like then it sort of ends up, you know, for the most part working out. So I, I, I sort of thought of the term naive, naively optimistic. And I sort of, you know, look back at, you know, a lot of steps and you know, not everything worked out. But so much of those, so many of those were like, well, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here or, or I thought I did and I really didn't, and then it sort of worked out. So I think there's that sort of, uh, you know, the idea of, I mean, I guess to a certain sense giving it a go, but also giving it a go with confidence, even if the confidence is not really earned. Uh, you know, so many of, uh, you know, the steps I've made in my career really fit that pattern, and for the most part, you know, it sort of worked out. And, you know, I, 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 the most recent examples, obviously, the, well, not obviously, but the, you know, starting a hedge fund, you know, we, you know, spun out of a bank and started the fund in 2009. And, uh, you know, the cliche about, often a slight tangent, the cliche about second marriages is a triumph of hope over experience. I think anyone starting a fund, <laughs> I, I think, and I think it's got gradually harder as well, but I think, you know, anyone starting a fund, if you look at the statistics, the, the chance of you being in any way successful are infinitesimally low. And not only that, if you think about the the 
opportunity cost that you incur in doing that. So you can do everything right, but if investors don't like you, you won't raise any money. You can do everything right trading, but if you don't have the, the, the infrastructure, they won't give you any money. So you can you know, be the best guy in the world. And if you start at a time that your strategy is going to struggle, you won't have a business. So I think having that, and, and again, that's, a, that's just a, a recent example. Uh, you know, those, what I just said, they're the facts. And I guess, you know, when uh, I guess, you know, I guess what it was 13 years ago when I, 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 I launched my fund, I didn't really know those facts. Or I, I mean, maybe I knew them a little bit, but sort of just decided to ignore them and plowed ahead. And, you know, we were very fortunate enough that it, it worked out in a way that was probably pretty low probability. And I can, I can literally go back to almost every career decision that I've made, and with the exception of a couple that I'll, I'll talk about, uh, you, 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 it was the same sort of pattern where you you know you, you think, oh, I'll do this because I can or we will, and when you actually stop and think about it, you go, well, actually, the chance of that really working is not great. But obviously, if you if you didn't try it, um, you know, it definitely wouldn't work. So I guess that's a little bit of a, in a way, an entrepreneur's mindset. I, I don't yeah. do myself particularly entrepreneurial. And I always remember I've, I've, I was at a dinner. This is probably just after I launched the fund and it was a, a, a VC dinner. And I was sitting next to this guy who was like a serial, uh, serial company starter. And he's like, oh, I just love the excitement. And it's, you know, as soon as it starts working, I get bored. I want to start something new. And I'm like, that sounds horrible. Like I've just set this thing up and I've, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, I, I, I hated it, but I still didn't enjoy it. It was just stressful and scary and, uh, you know, at no point did it feel good. So the fact that you sit here and say, oh, you know, I love the, I love the thrill of this. It's like, God bless. It's not, not for me. Yeah. It is a special, it is a special, you know, um, I think sp- especially the, the entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, building a company, uh, the founder mentality you've got to be you know um almost evangelical about it i mean it's really it's an amazing skill back to the optimism do you think it it was a a conscious decision or do you think it's just the way you're built uh i think it's probably just the, the way that i'm built and it's interesting if i think about the specific investing i've noticed over the years one of the the biases that I have that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but is at least something you want to be aware of. You know, I'm the guy who'll say, oh, that'll be okay. Like, yo, Russia invaded Ukraine. Oh, that'll work out. So I think it's sort of uh, definitely inbuilt and that, you know, in a, in a macro sense, that's a useful thing. And in a maybe more micro trade by trade thing, that's one of the heuristics that I definitely have that I need to be aware of and compensate a little bit the other way. Where do you trace that that feeling from, or that sort of that optimism, or that that gut sense, like oh, it's it's going to work out? Um, it's a good question. I, I I think there's, and again, you sort of see it in your children a little bit. There's just you know some people are you know confident, and some people are not. And uh, I think I've always been fortunate enough that. Obviously, everyone's insecure about certain things, so that's not to say you, you know, and you know, complete 100% confidence in everything you do is sort of probably you know akin to sociopathy. But uh, you know, so but having an underlying 
level of self-confidence that often is completely, totally unwarranted uh, is a is a uh, is, is probably a little hardwired. But you know, uh, maybe parents or I don't know. Not sure. I've never really thought about it too much, frankly. It's interesting that you were able to hang on to that because sometimes people start out like that, and then most certainly their experiences kind of break them of it. You know, like they shake it out of them. And especially in banking, going through the great financial crisis, um, I saw a lot of people who were, you know, very bold. I'm going to use instead of optimistic, bold, but you know, bold and you know, unafraid of taking on new challenges. And the mindset changed a little bit after the great financial crisis, because so many unexpected things blew up. But you you started a fund after that. I mean, you said you started in 2009, right? It's interesting you, you say that about the sort of humbling of when you go through something uh, bad. I think that, you know, that naive optimism that I, the term I used, maybe you sort of want to couple that, and we touched on this with a philosophical discussion before, with naive optimism, but with humility about, you know, Bad stuff happens in terms of in that. Uh, so and you know any sort of certainty around, frankly, anything. Um, you know you are dealing always, whether it's an individual trade or whether it's your life, with a probabilistic bet. And sometimes it'll work, and sometimes it won't. Hopefully, you, you try and structure things such that the probabilities will fall in your favour. Whether that's on an individual trade basis, you know, structuring a trade or risk return or stop losses or whatever, or even on a on a life basis, if you think about sort of, uh, you know, again, back to kids and, you know, if my kids go to college, probabilistically that'll give them a better chance of having, you know, quote, unquote, a successful life, whatever that means. And that's a tricky term. But, you know, so that's just putting, you know, putting the probabilities in your favour. It doesn't mean it'll work out. Um, but you, you, you've structured things such that you have the best chance of it working out, but with the knowledge that it might not. And you see this, it's one of those things that sort of uh, often another sort of slight tangent, you, you see this all the time with, say, sports stars who, you know, get paid a gazillion dollars and then three years later after they finish, they're bankrupt. And it's like, well, how did that happen? And it's because you're making the assumption that, you know, you, you still want to get paid like a sports star and then you're not a sports star. So I think an investment, as an investor, that's similar. You have a very volatile earning stream. And, you know, having the mindset that my, you know, this paycheck might be my last one, so let's live accordingly, uh, it's probably not the worst idea in the world. Your second trade is one of your worst, and that's moving from the sell side to the buy side way too early without being mentally ready. So, you know, set the scene for us. Like, what, what, what period are you talking about in your career? That's really the one time for me that the sort of, you know, naive optimism didn't really work out too well. And that was, uh, I guess that was 2002, 2002, I guess. So I was uh, in my late 20s and uh, I moved from Morgan Stanley to, to Tudor and I moved from, you know, running a market-making business and doing a fair bit of prop trading on the side to a, a pure portfolio management seat. And it's actually weird. I, 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 sort of, I could have made that move even earlier, I could have made that. I was offered the same job sort of a couple of years earlier, and I didn't think I was ready for it. So I wasn't completely sort of naive to, oh, this will be a change, but I massively underestimated what a change it was. And again, this is something I've been asked, you know, I've had a ton of, you know, my career, I've had a lot of investor meetings, and this is a question I've been asked a lot about how, you know, why did that go so badly? 
And the, uh, the the analogy I've used is that it's sort of somewhat akin to a guy who's a bus driver saying, you know, asking himself, you know, what do I do for a living? Oh, I I control a machine that transports people. A plane is a machine that transports people. I guess I can fly a plane. And now that's not to say a bus driver can't become a pilot, but it's a very very you know it's, it's and it is a it has a, it is a job that has some similarities. But it ain't the same thing, and it's much the. Same. You don't want to be in the plane with somebody no, who's a bus driver flying it, <laughs> yeah, or, or allocate money to them. Keep uh, <laughs> the technology going. So, yeah, and obviously you can make that transition, and you know there is obviously most not obviously, but you know a lot of people have done that, done that very successfully. But I enormously, to quote George Bush II, misunderestimated uh, the 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 difficulty in making that transition. Uh, you know, moving from a, a very collegiate atmosphere to a very uncollegiate atmosphere, uh, not having the the power of the franchise to 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 mentally prop you up when you're not doing well, uh, and then having that sort of cycle and do a you, know, you, you touched on it before about sort of being hardwired to be optimistic, um, you know, having that then cycle into a sort of you know, what am I doing? I don't think I can do this anymore, and oh, I guess I'm no good at this, and et cetera, et cetera. So. Had I been, again, looking back on this, had I been a little bit older, maybe a little more mature and thought about it a little bit more about what the challenges would be and, and been more mentally prepared for them, I would have done a much better job because um, I, I didn't. You know, I, was a, I was a tutor for three years and I pretty much sucked the entire time. Uh, and, you know, when I left, I was happy to leave and they were not remotely ha- unhappy to see me go. So uh, <laughs> It's hard though when you when you've, when you've done well, especially when you, you know, pull yourself up and you get that job and you're, you know, you're sort of checking all the boxes of, of really, you know, of what success looks like to kind of get punched in the face for three years straight. How do you handle that mentally? Uh, not well, I guess is the answer for me. Uh, yeah, not well. I mean, I get the conclusion I came to, which ended up yeah, not being wrong, but not being as right as I thought it was, was like, yeah, I guess I'm just not a hedge fund guy. I guess I'm just a bank guy. So that's why I went back to 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 a bank after that. And you know, thankfully I didn't go back to the to the sort of the the buy side of a bank. Oh, sorry, the, the the sell side of a bank. I went back to run a prop desk. So at least I didn't sort of go all the way back. But uh you know, that was, uh, yeah, that was the conclusion I drew. But is it, is it, when you think about it now with all the nuance of basically a prop desk is a hedge fund in a bank, in an investment bank when they were allowed to be. And, um, and then you ran a hedge fund and, and you did well in those. So were you really not a hedge fund guy or was it something about that time and experience? Yeah, that it was, was partic- more, yeah with the benefit of hindsight, more the latter. It was just, uh, I wasn't, as I said, my bad trade uh, outline is just, I wasn't ready for it. I, I wasn't ready for it. And, you know, I was too immature and I wasn't, uh, yeah, just I wasn't mentally prepared. I, I, as I massively underestimated the, the adjustment that it would take. And it was one of those things, and as well, it's one of those things where people tell you, oh, it's a big adjustment. And you're like, you know, oh, don't worry. Like, you know, I'll work it. And that's, that's where that sort of, you know, you know, I'll work it out. And uh, I didn't. So. Is there, I, I don't, you know, I've, I have not worked at a hedge fund Um is there in other areas? I mean, you said you were in your late twenties, right? That's still young in terms of you know career and development. Are, is there any mentorship that happens in a hedge fund, or is it really like you know? It depends on the fund itself, and I think 
you know, to, to Tudor's credit, they tried. It wasn't that they didn't. They wanted me to succeed as well. You know, trading coaches and you know meetings with the you know regular meetings with you know with the more senior guys there, whatever else. But you know, ultimately, it's you know, you've got to you've and that that's the thing about portfolio management. It is you know it's sort of not a team sport. At the end of the day, you know, if you're the yeah. portfolio manager, you know that number next to your name is your number, and you, know, you can. You can get as much help as you want. You can try as hard as you can, and people can try and help you as much as they want. But you know, if you make the wrong decisions for the wrong reasons, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hurt. Is it more of a team sport when you're on the prop side and in other situations that you then went on to do? Um, can can it be a team sport in that way? And does that help the process for you? Um, I think it does more than I thought it did, but not that much. If that makes sense, you know, obviously there are, and that's not to say that's the right way to do it. Um, you know, different people have different approaches, and you know, for me, I was found as just as an example. You know, I've, over the years, I've hired many analysts, and I've never really found a great way to make them work for me because either I believe them too much or don't believe them enough. So, and the and that's also somewhat analogous to using other people's ideas lock, stock, and barrel because. What I've found is, in terms of in that, when you you know, if you think about an individual trade, so when you make a trade, it's very, very, very rare that ever you you, know, you buy something that goes to where you think it should go, and you take it off and go, oh, that was easy. Like that, that almost never happens. So invariably, through the life of a trade, you know, the, the price action will move against you, or something will come out that will challenge your thesis or whatever else. And if you don't really own it so it's not if you don't fully accept the risk and own the trade when you have that challenge you'll be like ah you know what i do this for this is i shouldn't stupid analyst i should never listen to that guy or like oh you know of course you know if i'm trading someone else's ideas i'm going to work and you'll and that doesn't that might be true but it might not be and you'll invariably stop yourself out at the worst possible time so now, obviously, there are a ton of people out there who uh, who do a very good job of using analysts, and they probably trade way wider than I will because they you know got a team of people who can look at stuff. Because there's obviously only a, a number of things that you can look at, and the number of things you can focus on in any given day. So, having being able to sort of use other people to to do your work for you, I can imagine would be awesome. But it, it just doesn't really work for me personally. So, but there. But that being said, there's also a happy medium. So that's the sort of individual trade basis, but there's also a happy medium I mentioned before about you know portfolio management being a somewhat lonely occupation because you know it's you in terms of ultimately the buck the buck stops with you. So I'd make the argument that you when you're structuring however you happen to be working in you know whatever environment you're working in, you want to structure that in a way that mitigates that loneliness, not exacerbates that loneliness. And I think you know, my time at Tudor was, it's, it's, you know, it was a very, at that point in time, very siloed. So you almost weren't encouraged to talk to other people about ideas. And they had a very good reason for doing that, by the way, which is not something I disagree with. Um, so you know, having, you know, ha- as it having an environment that, as it mitigates that loneliness, that's something that's important. And, and that can, that changes too, by the way. So that's sort of, you know, I look at my last, you know, 15 years since I, left banking. So, you know, if you're working a prop desk at a bank, 
or in a trading room in a bank, you know, just surrounded by people. It's awesome. You know, you wake up, you go and say hello to everyone and sort of, you know, so you, so by definition, that loneliness is mitigated. Whereas if you're working as a standalone PM at a, at a, at a fund where you're sort of not encouraged to necessarily share ideas with people, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. So I think this brings us to your third trade, which is also one of your worst, and that's being a horrible delegator and manager. It sounds like that's kind of what you're talking about when it comes to working with other people. Yeah, I think it's a little worse than that, actually. So I think it is that, like everything you just said is true. But on the business side of things as well, I mean, I'm thinking about sort of, you know, what I didn't do a great job of when I was running the fund. Um, It was two things, ultimately, I don't like managing other people in terms of in that, you know, I don't, to a certain extent, I'm very happy to, don't say be left alone, but, you know, have interaction on my terms as opposed to other people's terms, which by definition is not great management. And there's also an element of very much liking to be treated, trying to treat other people like I'd like to be treated, which for the most part, just leave me alone, leave me alone, set me rules and leave me alone. And again, that works pretty well for a portfolio manager, but it works pretty horrendously for virtually every other every other task you might have. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so I think if I think about sort of you know, my time running the running the the fund, I just didn't really do a very good job of that. I, you know, I think my you know I'm not a good hirer, and I always think about the sort of the the substitution heuristic when it comes to hiring. And that's the idea that if you have a complicated question, you are programmed to substitute a, 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 a question in the vicinity, so a similar question that's much easier to answer. So if I think about sort of hiring for me, you know, should I hire this person? Are they going to be any good at what they do and how do they fit? And yada, yada, yada. That's a very complicated question to answer. But I would generally substitute, do I like this person? For that, which is a very easy question to answer, you know, do I or do I not? It's a binary thing, and you can know that within about thirty seconds of meeting someone, uh, and that doesn't necessarily lead to the the best hiring decisions, which are, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I found through my career. So I'm, I don't really know how to fix that, frankly. It's, it's so interesting. It's it's called affinity bias, right? We we hire the people that are most like us, but most people think it's because we want to be surrounded by people who are most like us. But you're sort of suggesting it's because we're avoiding a much more complicated question, which is a, a, a really nuanced way to think about it. And you're probably right, because that's the unknowable. That's that's hard to answer that one. I, I guess, in a way, I'm somewhat fortunate in that, you know, what I do for a living, unless I want to be running a fund again, doesn't really require me to be a particularly good manager. So I, have, I do have a couple of people working for me now, but they're more on the tech side of things and, you know, they're, I think I think uh, at least as antisocial as I am, so they're perfectly happy to be, be left alone for the most part and I'm perfectly happy to leave them alone. Um, are, are you antisocial though? Is that why you uh, think you really? Is that- I don't know. It gets back to the, 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 the thing we talked about before with respect to my daughter. I am not antisocial with people I know and like, but I am antisocial with people I either do not know or, you know, don't necessarily like. Uh, a joke, you know, a joke I've made about myself before that, you know, if, if there was a hell and I go there, it would be like some big gala where I have to mingle and talk to people I don't know. I would absolutely hate that. And I do absolutely hate that. 
By the way, most of us do. I think very few people totally thrive. They are out there. I've seen them and I marvel at them. But I think a, I think a lot of us suffer with that. Although when you're running your own fund, you get the opportunity, as we just said, because you're trading down to the simple question to say, do I like you? So you're presumably hiring people you like. So the antisocial part doesn't really fit that description. Do, do you, Let me ask you a question. When you were working when you were younger, did you need people to tell you that you were doing a good job? Did you like feedback? Uh, or did you really not feel the need for it? That's a good question. Um, no, I, don't, I, think I don't think I really needed it. And I guess, again, that's a portfolio manager's lot. Your feedback's your P&L. In terms of I'm doing a good job, it's positive. I'm doing a bad job regardless of you know, obviously there's some, some performance variance in there and you can crunch those numbers. But And I guess that's part of what draws myself and probably a lot of other people to this job, which is that, you know, the feedback is very objective. It's, uh, it doesn't have to be human. So that's the thing. But managing that is a big part of, is communicating constantly that feedback. And that seems to be the thing that you're, because if you don't need it yourself, you don't understand that other people do, right? Well, you can understand it intellectually, which clearly I do, but it's just something I'd rather not do. It's just, it's just I find that a painful, you know, that's just stuff that I don't want to do. And uh, and that's not good management at all. I mean, I realize that, but like, I, <laughs> I still don't want to do it. Could you have chosen to sort of double down and say, I this is where my weakness is, I'm going to be a better manager? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, I bought a bunch of books and I read some of them and I found them really boring. And I think, I think it's just, uh, I mean, there's core, you know, that's what an MBA is in terms of in those, you know, I have a good friend of mine from Australia who went to the INSEAD course. And he loved it. Like actually my dad did it too, funnily enough. And my dad also loved it. My dad is a very good manager. Um, yeah, they, they loved it. But I was like, that would be, again, if my hell is maybe going from a, room people that I have to talk to that I don't know and then to an INSEAD course about management that would probably be a, you know, a couple of different circles the same hell I think but uh, I had to keep that metaphor it's to really stretch that metaphor but um, so yeah I think you can absolutely you can absolutely do it I mean there's a whole a massive industry of management training that teaches you that stuff so I think you can do it and uh, but I just it's not, not my thing So your fourth trade is one of your best, and that's really, really liking to read. Why is that one of your best trades? Well, it's sort of touched on a lot of the things we've already talked about, which is there's a level of, I guess, intellectual. And there's always a paradox in saying intellectual humility because it's actually quite an arrogant thing to say. But there is a there is a uh, an element of intellectual humility in that there is an enormous amount of stuff that I don't know and I want to know. So how am I going to find that out? It's by reading. That's that's it. I mean, I can, you know, that, that's the only way to do it. Um, and then in terms of, and this is sort of a more recent buzzword that I'm sure you've heard, you know, the idea of being a lifelong learner, um, how that keeps brain plasticity and all that sort of wonderful stuff. Um, I think that's sort of true. I think that's sort of, you know, the idea of, uh you know, wanting to keep knowing stuff and learning new things till the day you die. I think that's an incredibly powerful, interesting thing. And again, how are you going to do that? It's not, you know, you don't have so many conversations in a day and 
getting back to all the things we've said, chances are you're talking to people who are somewhat similar to you, so there might not be as much uh, you know, variety of thought there that you get by just picking up a book. Um, so, And then the, the sort of thirdly and the most obvious one is that you know, a big part of investing, especially in a macro sense, is just knowing what's going on. And, again, how do you do that? You do that by reading a lot. Um, so it's funny, my youngest son is actually the only one of my children who is interested in what I do and he's you know always asking about the stock market, blah, blah, blah. But my, unfortunately, my youngest son is also dyslexic, so he finds reading very challenging. And he's like, you know, I want to do your job, Dad, but like, oh, the reading. I can, I'm like, you know, don't worry, Matthias, you'll get it. It's cool. You know, it's, you can do it in different ways and audiobooks and blah, blah, you know, don't worry. You, we'll work that out for you if you're interested. So having, you know, that's a, that's a good example of, you know, having that be a challenge for you. And, you know, I've always been the opposite. I've always loved to read. So, you know, having a big pile of crap that I've got to read is, that's exciting. I mean, there's going to be something in there that might be interesting, might make me smarter. And that's, you know, that gets me, that, that, you know, gets me out of bed every morning. Which is, so do you read, is it all economic reports and finance related or is it varied? I I read mostly, I mean, a ton of fiction. So, um, yeah, but I'll read, you know, pretty much literally anything in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, I, I read, I'm a, you know, thankfully a pretty quick reader. So I, I you know, read a, a lot of books every month and they are very varied. And, and there's obviously all the, all the periodicals and you know, general economic stuff that, 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 that anyone sitting in my chair will, will plow their way through on any given day. Um, so there's that too. And so, you know, enjoying that, you know, because that you sort of got to do it. And if you don't enjoy it, that would be, that would make for a fairly short career, I suspect. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's like, it's just like opening up a, a sort of new line of sight, uh, which is kind of extraordinary, you know? Um, and, uh, and you know, with this day, with everybody with their phones attached to them constantly, I'm always screaming. Before we came on, we established we both have teenagers, some of them the same age, or kids in, in the same sort of vicinity. And I'm constantly freaking out on them about just being on their phone all the time. We all do it, but I feel like it's robbing everyone of so much time that could be spent elsewhere. It slightly concerns me. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And even, you know, even more so there's that. And there's also just the attention span thing. Uh, you know, having a, a decent attention span is another cliche, but, you know, a superpower. And I, I catch myself. I, I do it too in terms of in the, to the point where I've... If I, if I want to sit and read and concentrate on something, I leave my phone on my desk and go to a different room and do it there because uh, it's so it's it's stupid, you know. It's and by design, so it's stupidly addictive. That's the that that's what it, that is what it's designed to do. How do you curate what you want to read? Do you, do you get recommendations? Do you go seek it out? Does it just somehow accidentally land on your lap? Uh, I read a lot of book reviews in all seriousness. So uh, a ton of book reviews. I subscribe to book review magazines. And so I, I try to stay on top of it, things that way. And then when it comes to the more work-focused stuff, uh, there's, I guess, a, there's a you know, habit of years to a certain extent. You, you, you find stuff that resonates with you. And then I've been asked this question a lot, and then I've, I've sort of so I've thought about it a bit. And I think ultimately I'm also just a bit of a sucker for good writing. So if I like to read it, I'm going to read it. And it could be, and, that, and again, there's a there's a heuristic there that you want to be a little bit careful of. Just because someone writes well doesn't mean their ideas are actionable, and you know vice versa. If the guy writes horribly and his ideas are awesome, you don't want to dismiss that. But yeah, so it's not particularly scientific for me. It's if I like to, no. if I like to read it, I'll read it. If I don't like to read it, I won't. And again, ultimately, you know, what's the point of any of it? Like in terms of why you're doing any of this stuff, it's 
to develop a worldview. And generally, and getting back to the comment I made before about if I do a trade where the guy says buy dollar yen, you go buy dollar yen and you don't own it, you'll probably mess it up. Whereas if you have a worldview that then leads you in that direction, uh, you know, you'll, you'll probably do a better job of risk managing it. So the reading is really just to develop that worldview. And the analogy, again, I used to always use with investors uh, was the sort of the idea of the, the, you know, the rubber band ball. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ball of all the rubber bands. I mean, as you, what, all you're doing to read is you, you know, you're adding a rubber band or subtracting a rubber band. And then that rubber band ball that you have is the, you know, the basis for your views. And that's it. Do you consider yourself a creative person? Um, probably a little, but not very good at it. So, you know, you know so I think there is a, a large element of imagination that's required to do this job well. So you want to be thinking about, and, I, I'm, and if I sort of, you know, I tend to be pretty quick to beat myself up about things. If I, you know, one of the, the regular things I beat myself up about is the lack of imagination. I'm just, you know, oh, what do I think of that? Like, you know, uh, uh, so there's a, so I think there's a, an enormous creative element to investing, which is thinking about things in a, a, a different way. And I'm not awful at it. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily think I'm particularly great at it. Uh, you know, and I, I guess when it comes to writing, I think I'm an okay writer. I, you know, I write a monthly note still because I like the discipline of it. And, you know, there's a lot of people who do a much better job than me, but there's a lot of people who do a probably worse job than me. So I put myself sort of firmly in the middle of the pack in terms of writing ability. Uh, though I do try and sort of make it personal and have my personality shine through it. So I think I do an okay job of doing that. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to other stuff, you know, I've, I've been packing away at the guitar for the last seven years and I would love to be better at that, and, but I never will be. Um, so, you know, James Altucher did a did, did this podcast with us and he said something that really stayed with me and it it it's, seems to me to connect to your um you know your love of reading or your the, you know the fact that reading is essential and he was coming off a really bad period just a disastrous period where he lost tons of money and it was he's just some really dark place and um he took out a paper and said I'm going to write down 10 ideas um, every day I'm going to write down 10 ideas. And it was really, it was, a, it was a slog, you know, it wasn't something that was coming easily to him. And he felt like that sort of, um, forced discipline of creativity and content and just thinking, you know, uh, really was what dragged him out of his spiral and, um, put him on the right foot. And I just thought that was such incredibly sage advice for everyone. And seems to me to be very connected to your reading for him. It was 10 ideas for you. It seems to be reading, but that idea of, challenging yourself to learn and think, you know, outside of, you know, the sort of moment that you're in seems incredibly powerful. That's a massive part of why I so as I mentioned, I still write a monthly note, which I, when I was running external money, I had to do. And I tried to have other people do it for me and it never really worked very well. So I always did it myself. And when I did, when I did it for my external investors, I found like it was like a homework assignment. I used to absolutely hate doing it. And it was, you know, it was, and it was more of a marketing document as well. So it was like, you know, things are doing well, you sort of want to spin it. And if you want things are doing badly, you sort of want to spin that too. And it wasn't it wasn't an honest document. Whereas now that I'm doing it just for myself, and I still send it to literally thousands of people. Um, so if anyone wants to be on the list, send me an email. The big part of why I do it is exactly that, because it forces me to, every month to sit down and write a long form piece about what I'm thinking. And you know, like right now, I'm not really thinking. I haven't you know had a particularly good 
caught us. I'm like, I don't really know what I'm thinking, but in the next 15 days, I'm going to have to come up with something. And, you know, writing that down as well, you don't want it to suck. So it's got to be something at least somewhat well thought out because you can have ideas in your head. And I think the sort of, you know, degrees of, of testing those ideas to a certain extent. So I can have an idea in my head and if I don't mention to anyone, it's just an idea in my head and I can think that I've examined every angle of it, but I probably haven't. If I have a conversation with someone about it, that takes us to the next level where I have to you know, defend it to a certain extent. And I think the level after that is actually writing about it because then you really have to, you know, you see very quickly where it's thin and and then that forces you to either thicken it or abandon it. And that's a, that's a good process. So you see, you're, you're incredibly introspective for someone who's, you know, had this very successful career by anyone else's, you know, uh, estimation. And, and you seem sort of very willing to be critical of yourself. I don't know if overly critical, maybe even, but that's probably for the purposes of this, but that you, that's the vibe I'm picking up. Why is that? Uh, I definitely lean that way. Um, and I don't, it's funny, I don't feel I've been, you know, I will, you know obviously at, at some level I know I've been very fortunate. On the other level I'm like, I really F that up. Like I really should have done a lot better and I really do feel that way. Like, and I guess in a way that's not great because it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, maybe lessens overall happiness perhaps. I always think about David Schwimmer, the guy from Friends, and like, what does he do every morning? Like, so does he wake up? Does he wake up and go, today's the day I'm going to get another role? And then he goes to bed, oh, not today. And then he wakes up the next day and goes, today's the day I'm going to get another role. And this is, you know, you think about Hollywood actors who have been very successful and then just disappear. What do those guys do? I mean, like, literally, what do you wake up in the morning and do? And that's, and you have all the money in the world, but what a horrible life. That just sounds, and maybe I'm, once again, I'm, I'm randomly people. Sorry, so David. No, but like you know, <laughs> what is what well, do I, I do? I mean, this I, is the this is the huge challenge of talk about having a growth mindset of of shifting your identity, right? I mean, there's probably anything harder than reinventing yourself. Reinvention takes an enormous amount of. Uh, you know, like a mix, I think of like creativity, energy, humility, self-confidence, you know, um, to sort of become something else after you succeeded. Yeah. Especially the, the closing the fund and moving to a family office thing in terms of that was really hard. Um, cause you know, you put your sort of heart and soul into it for, you know, for me, in my case, a decade and a sort of accumulation of, you know, everything you'd work towards. As I said, I don't feel that we did as good a job as we should have in terms of I think we had an opportunity to do something incredible and we fell well short of that. So, I, I, I you know, I, I will regret that forever, basically. Like I so said, there's no going back. It's done. Like, uh, so there's always, there'll always be that regret. But at the end of it, you know, I, I always sort of, well, not always, but I've, again, this is a topic that I've thought about a lot and I've been asked about a lot. I have two sort of little throwaway lines about the sort of, you know, the move from an external managing you know, literally billions of dollars of external money to just manage my own little family office, uh, you know, the hedge fund side of things, I, I, I sort of say I'm, I'm, I get most of the time I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. And the other thing is that, you know, it's worse, way worse for my ego, but probably better for my soul. I think that this is where being the lifelong learner comes in because 
there's a point where the transition, the, the, the introspection and the hard work you're doing now and maybe still doing gives you those lessons and insight about yourself. And then at some point it, it will, it does free you up with, with just more knowledge to be ready. Um, as Sergio, um, said to me, Silva said to me, he was, he, there's always luck involved, but when you're ready, you're ready when the opportunity comes, right? Like there's a sort of lucky intersection of something that will, you know, define your next chapter and you're kind of meant by doing all that hard work and introspection, you're mentally ready and sort of free to, to do whatever that is. So I think there's a, there's a, you have to be, you have to realize it's not static either. So, and you have to sort of fit what you're doing to how you feel at that given point in time. And it's funny, I was talking to, a, literally having this conversation yesterday with a, a friend of mine, we were talking about our fathers and he's my age as well. And, you know, he's doing, doing well, but still working very hard and as am I. And he was talking about his dad who retired and he was a, a, a CEO, you know, a CEO of a division of a, a big public company in Australia. So successful guy. And he retired when he was, you know, roughly our age. My, my friend's a little older than me, but he retired when he was 52 and then spent the next 17 years as a very active board member on a golf course. And my friend was saying, I don't know how he did that. And I sort of would agree. But there may be, and we both agree, we both also agree, though, there may be a time, though, when you wake up one morning and maybe the fire's not burning quite as strong as what it was for whatever you're doing, you know, today as was the day before, and then each day it gets a little less sort of intense and then you go do something else. So so I think it's sort of a, you know, again, introspection and somewhat self-knowledge around this stuff where you sort of think, okay, well, you know, I'm pumped to get out of bed to do what I do today. And if tomorrow I'm not pumped to get out of bed to do what I do today, I probably should do something else. And that's, I guess, that's where having, you know, been fortunate in your career and having the wherewithal to actually make, you know, because most people are not given, that's not a choice. You know, for, for the vast majority of humanity, that is not even close to being a choice. So you have to be cognizant of the fact that you are ridiculously blessed to even be able to think that way. And then you know, don't don't fuck up the blessing, frankly. Like, you know, <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Like, you know, be, be, know that and then, yeah, use it. Yeah, it's kind of, but, in, but it, it, even for those who don't have the ability to think of it on such a grand scale, being able to, you know, pivot your perspective and embrace change and know that something else may be there and, you know, just be ready for it, I think is is fantastic advice and do what you can. Read those books to prepare yourself. Yeah. Yep. Todd, this was such a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. I can't wait till we see each other at a big gala and go hide outside somewhere away from I'll, everyone. I'll be, I'll be the bar. Come find me. I'll be the bar. That's, that's, <laughs> I'll, I'll be with you and then run out on the patio where no one can yeah. see me. <laughs> It's so fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maggie. Much appreciated. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.